As G.K. Chesterton said, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Here on Swimming Upstream, we go against the cultural stream by championing life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Your host is Eric Sammons, author of seven books, including Holiness for Everyone, The Old Evangelization, and Bitcoin Basics. Now let's get swimming. Welcome to episode 100 of Swimming Upstream. I'm Eric Sammons. That's right, this is the 100th episode of Swimming Upstream. I've been doing this for almost exactly two years. I started in May of 2017, and it is now May of 2019, and that's two years last I checked. And this podcast has really been an opportunity just for me to talk about things that interest me. My original uh, opening to it would say that basically I talk about whatever I feel like, and that's what I did, but really I had a, a general themes. I talked about uh, topics of interest to Catholics, a majority of these podcasts, of the 100 podcasts, I think about 60 of them have to do with Catholic topics. I had uh, technology. I talked about technology, usually cryptocurrency-related technology, I think on eight different podcasts. Uh, I, I talked on politics in general, usually libertarian politics, in about 20 of these podcasts. You'll, you'll notice this won't add up to 100 because I sometimes talked about a combination of different topics in one podcast. I, I talked about the pro-life issue of, uh, against abortion on, I think, five of the podcasts. And then on the other one, and baseball, I talked about baseball uh, in 10 of the podcasts. And then I had some other ones that were just on various topics that interested me at the time. And I've enjoyed doing this uh, podcast, and I hope those who have li been listening to it have also enjoyed it. However, I do have an announcement to make, and I, I think I teased this on a previous episode, and that is this will also not only be the 100th episode of Swimming Upstream, it will be the last episode of Swimming Upstream. That's right. I think I'm going to hang up this podcast. I think it's run its course. Uh, and so what am I going to do next? Again, that's the question. I'm not really sure. I have an idea for another podcast that's uh, different from this one, and I even have some uh, things written, jotted down about it, uh, some notes I've taken, but I'm not quite sure if I'm going to do that right now. I'm really going to take a little bit of a break and see what I want to do next. Uh, it might be podcasting. It might just be writing. It might be doing something locally here in Cincinnati. I don't know right now. But I do know I'm going to go ahead and finish up this podcast. I want to thank everybody who has listened to the podcast and hopefully those maybe years in the future who end up downloading it uh, on their podcast catcher later. They also enjoy it. But all those who have been listening, I do appreciate it. And I hope that you have enjoyed it as much as I have. And hopefully you've learned something. I mean, that's kind of the intention of it. So Hopefully people uh, learn something from it. But I do want this. This is going to be a real episode. I'm not just saying that this is my 100th and last episode. What I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you a uh, presentation I gave recently on the four last things. I thought that'd be appropriate for the last podcast. I would talk about the four last things, which, of course, are death, judgment, hell, and heaven. And I talk about each of those at a catechism class I taught recently for my parish. So I hope you do enjoy that this final podcast and you learn something about the final things that are going to happen to each one of us which is death judgment hell or heaven hopefully the last one i hope you enjoy this thanks so tonight 
It's our last uh, class, so we're going to talk about the four last things. And so we thought, uh, the book, obviously, it's the last thing in the book, and so we're finished after this, but it makes sense that this would be the last thing. Just like in the liturgical year, which ends in November, that's when we focus on the four last things. So at the end of this class, we're going to talk about the four last things. So what are the four last things? Death, judgment, hell, and heaven. So we're just going to go through those and talk about each one. The first one, I brought a prop tonight. My, my skull for death. In fact, does anybody know why? Who was the saint who put this on their desk? I mean, a lot have, but who was the first one? Well, anybody know? St. Jerome. Very good. Whoever said Jerome? Very good. St. Jerome kept a skull, which probably was a real skull in his case, because they wouldn't have made these kind of plastic type things, I don't think, that you could buy from Amazon uh, in his day. But he kept a skull on his desk to remind him of death. And I remember I had this, when I worked for a diocese, I had this on my desk at the, at the diocesan office. And you get some weird looks because people who like have skulls on their desk aren't usually Catholics or anything these days. But anyway, it's to remind you of death, that, that every single one of us is going to die. So the first of the four last things is death. Now, actually, I meant to hand this out before I got started, so I will hand it out now. It's, it's from the book... It's just a, uh, a nice chart that I thought was very useful for our purposes. And so the first one is death. And what I think is important here, that the, that the chart says, you can see on the chart, it says death of the body. Because that's an important point. Because each of us are created... And we're created to live forever. And so, in a sense, we never die. God created us to last forever. But our bodies die. So actually, death itself, what is death? It's, it's simply the separation of the body from the soul. When we think of it normally, we think of that type of death, which is the separation of the body from the soul. Our Lord himself experienced death. Because his body and his soul were separated. On Good Friday, his soul left his body, just like it does for all of us who die. And every one of us die. Now, the separation of the body and soul, which we'll see, talk about a little bit more in a little bit, is temporary. It's not permanent. Our bodies will be eventually reunited with our soul. Now, why is it, why is there death? And it, it's very clear, it's the result of original sin. It's not part of the plan of the original plan of God before sin entered the world. Death wasn't supposed to exist. But St. Paul writes, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all men sinned. And so the, the reason that the body separates from the soul at, at one point, at some point, for every one of us, is because of original sin. Sin is what brings death into the world. Because what it basically sin did was it disorders everything, including our relationship with ourselves. So our, our souls, relationship with our body. And so we decay, we die. And so that is all the result. Now, the, the thing is for the... Now, death, of course, is probably the thing that is most feared throughout human history. It's the one thing we, we do everything we can to beat. And in fact, we've done a very good job in our, our world of defeating death, or I should say not defeating it, but going 
pushing death off as much as possible, more so than any other time in human history. I mean, the, the average lifespan, I think, is 70-some years, which is a, a, a large lifespan in this grand historical scheme of things. But so, but as Christians, we actually don't have to fear death. Because in baptism... We died in Christ. St. Paul says that. Actually, that was chapter 5 of Romans. I quoted before from St. Paul. In chapter 6, Paul continues the theme, but he talks about how so death enters the world through one man, through his sin, but then life enters it through one man, which is Jesus Christ, because Jesus in dying destroyed our death. So we don't have to fear death if we are baptized followers of Christ who are in a state of grace. So we don't have to fear because we know at death, the only thing you really have to fear at death is what happens to you afterwards. And so we're going to talk about the things that happen to you after death. But death itself isn't something to be feared. It's just a natural, now a natural part of, of life. And so our main duty when it comes to death and thinking, and the reason we think about death, we should contemplate death regularly, not in some morbid sense, you know, we're not goths or something like that, but in the sense that we need to be prepared for it. Just like if you're going to have an interview or if you're, or if you're going to be uh, taking a test or something like that, you prepare ahead of time. Well, we're going to be taking a test. We're going to be having an interview, the most important one of our life, when we die. And so we have to be prepared for it. And that then takes us to the next of the four last things, which is judgment. Okay, a, a completely silly aside. My spell check always wants me to drop the E in judgment, but I'm sorry, this is how I spell it. So, I don't know if it's like an English-American thing, but I spell it with an E in the middle. So, at death, we will face what's called our particular judgment. So, at your death, at my death, we face our particular judgment, meaning... The judgment that's just for you. And it's the judgment of your life. And it's the decision that decides where you will go. Will you go to one of three places initially? You will either go to hell, to purgatory, or to heaven. There are no other options besides those. Well, I shouldn't say that because there is always a There is limbo, which is not a defined. We're not going to talk about limbo much tonight. I actually have no plans to talk about it, but I do want to bring it up since it is, it is something to do with after your death and judgment. For a long time, the, uh, many theologians have posited, great theologians posited, the possibility of limbo, which is basically a state for somebody who dies without being baptized, yet they, are, they have not committed actual sin. So they have the effects of original sin. If you're not baptized, original sin, unless you're the Blessed Virgin Mary... Is is the stain of it's on you, and so you don't you, you shouldn't go to, you can't go to heaven in that situation has been taught for a long time, but you haven't committed actual sins. So, for example, the unbaptized baby, or maybe the mentally disabled uh, person who has committed no actual sins, they don't have the capability even. If they die, what happens to them? Because in general, thinking about the mercy of God, you you. Thinking that they would go to hell to eternal torment just doesn't really make sense. But at the same time, if you really value what baptism is, then going to heaven doesn't necessarily make sense either. And so for a long time, 
limbo has been this idea of one theory of where they would go. And that's a state of basically it's happiness, but it's kind of natural happiness. It's not the bliss of heaven, not, no pains like in hell or even purgatory. It's just this limbo area. Now, that being said, <clears throat> over the past maybe hundred so years, the idea of limbo has kind of fallen out of favor. It has never been a teaching of the church officially, uh, but it's never been denied officially either. Pope Benedict, a, a few, about maybe 10 years ago, wrote something that basically, he kind of said that limbo isn't really probably an option. It's not really probably uh, true, the existence of limbo. But he never defined it as Pope himself either. So as Catholics, we're still free to believe in limbo if we want. But, so I just want to bring that up because uh, I just thought of it. So, but anyway, at the particular judgment, you, it will be decided whether you go to hell, purgatory, or heaven. <laughs> now, essentially, it's, it's, it's simple, not easy. If you are in a state of grace and you have no disordered attachments, you will go straight to heaven. So, we'll just say state of grace... And no disordered attachments, then you go to heaven. If you are in a state of grace, but you do have disordered attachments, I'll, I'll kind of explain what I mean by disordered attachments in a second. You go to purgatory. And if you are not in a state of grace, then you go to hell. So what do I mean by this? State of grace and not state of grace, I think as probably most people here know, basically uh, it means you have no mortal sin on you. You've either just been baptized, or you ba- haven't committed a mortal sin since you were baptized, or you haven't committed a mortal sin since you went, mortal sin since you went to confession, a valid confession. So if you've have gone to confession, have not committed a mortal sin since then, you're in a state of grace. Which means you're basically in friendship with God. You are, uh, so you are, you are able to go to heaven. If you're, if you're in a state of mortal sin, that means you are not in friendship with God, and so you go to hell. We're going to talk about hell and heaven for a little more in a minute, but let's talk about the judgment. So God will basically look at what state you are in, and he'll send you accordingly where you should go. Now, when I say disordered attachments, that's just one way of saying that basically you can be in a state of grace but have attachments to this world, not be a saint, basically. Saints are those who are a true... And, you know, the word, use of the word saint can be used different ways. In the Bible, they talk about saints just as anybody, the baptized. But usually we mean capital S, saints. Somebody who, who is completely detached from the disorders of this world, and they're completely attached to God in this life. If they die, when they die, they go to heaven directly. Now, the classic example of somebody like that would be a martyr. And it's always been church teaching that somebody who dies for the faith does not go to purgatory. They go automatically to heaven. Why is that? Because they've literally detached themselves completely from this world because they've given up the greatest thing that they can give up, which is their own life. And so if you're willing to be killed, and you are killed for the faith, then you, you're, you're a martyr, and you automatically then go to heaven, because you basically, uh, you don't have any of those attachments to this world. Now, you could be in a state of grace, but have venial sin, have, have 
just desires that aren't ordered properly, but they're not so great that they cause you to commit mortal sin. Well, in that situation, the judgment is, okay, you're in a state of grace, so you, you deserve, in a sense, you know, through the grace of God, of course, that's why it's called a state of grace, to go to heaven. You can be in his presence. But nothing disordered or uh, sinful in any way, shape, or form can be in the presence of God. Therefore, you need to get those attached, those disordered attachments, those venial sins purged from your, yourself so that you can be in the presence of God in heaven. Now, how long? We'll talk about purgatory in a little bit. That's basically what's happening in particular judgment. So it's particular to you. And so it's decided where you will go. You see it in the chart where the soul goes to the particular judgment, heaven, purgatory, or hell. Now, I'm going to skip to the general judgment. Then we'll talk about each of the different places you go. There's also what's called the general judgment. This one is a little more interesting in the sense that it's a little bit hard to explain. Because, and understand, because in a particular judgment, once that's happened for you, you're guaranteed you're going to where you were judged to go. I mean, you're going to hell, you're going to purgatory temporarily, or you're going to heaven. There's no... Like, another option at that point. It's final for you. At the general judgment, though, what happens is that happens at the return of Christ. So at the second coming, when Christ comes into the world, and basically the end of the world, and so this world ends, it's it's, uh, resurrected in a sense, there's a, a, a new heavens and a new earth, and what happens then is everybody, there's a judgment, a general judgment, where everybody in existence will see your judgment, basically, and vice versa for everybody else. So it becomes basically public knowledge for everybody. And so that's the general judgment. And it's, it's, in one sense, it's a way of showing the glory of God because we will see how just everything is. We will see how great God's glory is, His mercy, His, his uh, judgment, all those things. We will glorify Him. Even those who are in hell or are going to hell at the, you know, at the, on the last days, they even, in a sense, glorify God because it shows God's great justice. And so that's the general judgment that will happen at the end of time, in which all of our uh, good works, all of our sins, everything will be put in front of everybody for everybody to see. And it basically confirms the, the, the particular judgment. The other big thing that happens at the general judgment in the last days is that we are reunited with our bodies. Right now in heaven, there are only two bodies, our Lord's and our Lady's. Because, of course, our Lord, his resurrected body, we know he has his body. And, of course, our Lady, because she was assumed into heaven body and soul. Everybody else, though, is just a spirit, a soul. And the angels are spirits, and they they don't get by, of course, because they're only spirits. What will happen, though, is that at the general judgment in those last days, we will be reunited with our bodies and our, our glorified bodies. So our bodies will be, in a sense, like Christ's body after the resurrection. You know, we're reading all these stories right now, and it's, you know, he passes through walls, and they don't always recognize him. Something is different about his body. It's the same body that was crucified, hung on the cross, and died, and was in the tomb. It's the same body, yet it has been glorified. So it has changed, in a sense, as well. And that's what will happen to us. All the things that you would expect will happen as far as, for example, I won't need glasses. Uh, My back won't hurt anymore. I won't have gray hair, probably. I mean, all these things will no longer be true. And so if, for example, you die 
a, a very old man who in a hospital can't even walk, you get your glorified body will be physically perfect. If you die as a maybe a baptized you know, one-year-old, it will be a glorified. Um, the, some of the stuff is general consensus. Obviously, we don't know because it hasn't happened yet, but it's just general <laughs> consensus is that you will then be glorified in a, in a perfect adult body, basically. And so that is, and note, everybody gets reunited with, everybody gets reunited with their body. So not only the, the, the just in heaven, but also the damned in hell. They get reunited with their bodies, and so their punishment will go from being just spiritual to also being physical because of the fact they will have their bodies. So that happens at the, on the last day. We get reunited with our, our, our bodies. Another thing that happens is purgatory is emptied. And so there's always some speculation. What about the people at the end of, the, uh, of time who die? And, you know, won't they? They'll go straight to heaven, actually, because they'll, they'll be lifted up with our Lord. I'm assuming the ones in the state of grace. Because basically the, the theory is, is that the end days, you know, we, we talk about the end days will be this time of great suffering, everything before the Lord returns. They're going through the purgatory here on earth. So that's the general judgment. What happens at that time is, is, is that God's justice is revealed and to all. We're, we're reunited with our bodies and uh, purgatory is emptied and it reconfirms the particular judgment. Okay, so now that we've talked about death and judgment, we need to talk a little bit more about what actually happens, wh- wh- the different places you can go. I'll start with the bad news first. So, the first place, the the place we deserve to go, I think is the best way to put this, honestly. The place we deserve, every single person, except for the Blessed Mother, and I, you know, obviously Jesus is a divine person, that's a little different, but we all deserve hell. Not just because we're uh, born with original sin, that is why, but also because we deserve it for our own actions. And so hell is where you go if you have been found not to be in state of grace when you die. Because of the fact, and that's only because of the fact of Christ's uh, mercy that it's possible not to go to hell. Now, the few things, the things we know, every time, anything we talk, anytime we talk about things that happen after death, there are a few things that are defined, and then a lot of things that are speculated. And I'll kind of do a little bit of both. But a few things we know about hell is, number one, it exists. Okay, there is, you have to, as a Catholic, you have to believe that hell exists. That is a de fide doctrine of the faith. Another thing is, it is eternal. Hell does not end. And, and so therefore, we have, the punishment is eternal. And once you are in hell, you are in there for eternity. You don't leave hell. So for example, the, the, the Satan and, and all the demons, they're in hell forever. Anybody who goes to hell is in hell forever. Another thing that I would say, I would argue this is a teaching of faith, but I do think there will be some people who might disagree with me, Catholics might disagree with me, is that hell is populated by men and women, not just the demons. That there are people in hell. Now, the church doesn't say, like the church says certain specific people are definitely in heaven, i.e. the canonized saints. It does not make statements about certain people definitely being in hell. For example, it does not say Martin Luther is definitely in hell or anything like that. It just kind of leaves it like, well, that's up to God. You, you know, we know what he did on earth was bad, but we're not going to judge what his soul was like. But I would argue the reason we know he's definitely populated is because of Judas. 
Because the scriptures say very clearly, I mean, our Lord said very clearly, it would be better if he had not been born. And if he is in heaven, that's not possible to say that. It's, it's definitely better that he was born and be in heaven. But if you're in hell, it is better that you had not been born. And there's other, it's just basically, though, the idea that nobody goes to hell, which has become more and more popular over the past maybe 50 years, I think is a, a very dangerous belief and a dangerous doctrine. It, it's one of the reasons why we don't really evangelize a lot and don't go on missions and things like that because we just kind of assume everybody's going to heaven and nobody's going to hell. Well, people are going to hell and, and there are people there. And so, if you, again, if you're in mortal sin, at death, that's where you go. Now, one thing, hell is obviously very controversial today because we have a great focus on mercy and not on justice. And the, just the way I worded that, of course, is wrong. Because in God, they're the same thing. God's love is God's mercy, is God's justice, is God's um, everything. I mean, he just is. There is no difference between his mercy and his justice. They're the same thing. But I really think, personally, I, I, one of the, the best books I ever read, and I recommend very highly, and it wasn't even written by a Catholic, it's uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Anybody read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? Look at this educated young man here. Nice, I like it. Give your parents a, a big kudos there. It is a great, it is a great book. Now, I'm not going to... He says in the introduction to the book, this is not meant to be a theological book that is explaining detailed doctrine. It's a story. And it's a beautiful story because it, 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 it's this guy who basically... It's kind of taken after uh, Dante's Inferno and, and uh, Paradise and Purgatory and all that. But this guy ends up, he, he's about to get on a bus, he, he doesn't know what happened, but he's basically in the afterlife. And he ends up going, he starts off in like this hell, purgatory area, ends up going towards heaven. He sees these different people being judged. But the, 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 there's a lot of scenes in it. So it's a very short book. It's a read, it's a, it's like a, it reads like a novel, so, but it's very, very short. It's very easy to read, so I recommend it highly. But one of the best things about it is it makes it very clear that... You could say that hell, in hell the doors are locked from the inside. They don't want to get out. People in hell don't want to leave. Which sounds crazy to us, but it is true. Because they have with their lives, by not being in secret, they have with their lives rejected God. They don't want to be with him. And so the very idea to them of being in heaven, to them is hell. They think of that like that would be hell. To be in the presence of God. Because remember heaven, which we'll talk about in a minute, the main thing about it is you're in the presence of God. Well, to them, that would be because of the fact that they, they hate God. Do you want to be in the presence of somebody you hate? No, you, you want to be away from them. And you'd rather be miserable in your, in, you know, out away from that person than to be actually with them. And so people who are in hell, they choose to go to hell. Because basically, there's a line he has in there, I don't want to mess up, he says that essentially, at the end of your life, either you will say, thy will be done, or God will say to you, thy will be done. And so the, the point is, if you go to hell, it's because that's what you wanted. By, that's how you chose to do in your life. Because you wanted to have nothing to do with God. Another reason why we know that hell exists, and that people go there, is because... <clears throat> of the fact that God has given us free will. And if he has given us free will, 
it's not really free if no matter what we do, we're guaranteed to go to heaven. Because essentially then we're just robots who are just going through the motions knowing I could be a mass murderer, I could be Stalin or Hitler, I could be Mother Teresa, it doesn't really matter. And really, it's very nihilistic. You know, you, you kind of go down a spiraling path if you start to think about the fa- idea of there actually not being a hell. Because you realize everything's a joke then, if that's true. There's no reason for anything if, you, if there is no hell. But there is a reason, obviously, if there is, it is a hell. And so it's this radicalness of love, because in love, you open yourself up to rejection. And God, in a sense, opens himself up to rejection. But he does it out of love. And he, he's not going to force us to do anything. Now, in hell, the pains of hell, the greatest pain of all is that separation from God, that knowing that you are separated from love, which you've rejected, and you don't want anything to do with, yet you know, still underneath, you know deep down, it's your fault. It's like, you, you sometimes know people like this, that you try to be good to them, and they reject your advances, they reject your help, but yet they know at the same time, as like an alcoholic, when you're trying to help them, they know it's best for them not to be an alcoholic, yet at the same time they reject it because they can't give up their... Their, their, uh, their alcoholism. And the same thing with us with sin. And so this pain of loss, that you've lost the thing you were created for, and the reason we're created is to be with God forever. You've lost that forever. That pain of loss is the greatest of the pains in hell. And there's you know, basically these the, the spiritual pains. But there are also, like I said, physical pains once you get your body. That once you're, you reunite with your body, there are physical pains as well. But those are the ones that maybe make the best storytelling, like in, in books or movies or something, but they're the least of the pains in hell. But like I said again, all of hell is self-inflicted. If you're there, it's through your own fault. There's no mistake somebody accidentally gets sent to hell or anything like that. Okay, so that's the bad news of what happens. If at your particular judgment you have rejected God, you're not in the state of grace. Another option, if you die, is actually not one of the last four. It's not one of the four last things because it's not final, and that's purgatory. So you could also go to purgatory. Now, purgatory is a temporary time of intense suffering. The name, of course, comes from the idea of purging. Because what's happening is your, your disordered attachments, your sins are being purged from you. And that's a painful thing. And why is it? We, we see that's true in our life here on earth as well. Because think about like just We just finished the season of Lent. And we tried to do self-discipline. We tried to give up things to get better. To detach ourselves from the things of this world. Even some of the good things that have kind of become short. It's like uh, uh, one of the things... I know a lot of people sometimes they give up... Uh, you know, maybe chocolate or treats or something like that. Well, obviously chocolate or treats are, are not bad in and of themselves. It's that kind of being disorderly attached to them that becomes bad. And so it's painful to give up something like that it, it, because you're used to it, you like it. And so these things are painful. And that is the case with everything. If, you, For example, you want to be an Olympic athlete. Well, you're not going to be an Olympic athlete, I guarantee, without pain. At some point or another, you're going to experience pain. Probably very intense pain. 
Think about a, a, a marathon runner in the Olympics who, who wins the Olympics. Well, the fact is they went through a lot of pain before the race even started. They went through pain during the race as well, all for the glory of winning the race. And the same thing is true here that in order to win the race so that in our life we will end up eventually in heaven, we have to go through pain and suffering. That's just the way things are, and we can complain about it and not like it, but it's true. And so we have two options, assuming we're in a state of grace. We have two options of when we can suffer that pain, either in this world or in purgatory. All the saints, all the spiritual advisors, directors, everything, have always said, you want it in this world. You want to to embrace the suffering in this world and get purged of your sins here rather than purgatory. In purgatory, it's intense suffering. It is joyful suffering, but it is intense. And it's, in most people, uh, you know, spiritual directors and saints and uh, theologians have postulated that the, the pain and suffering in purgatory is far, far, far greater than anything we experience here on earth. And the whole time you experience, though, you do know that you will be in heaven. That's why it's joyful suffering. And you embrace it when you're in purgatory because of the fact that you know you're doing, you deserve it, because at this point you don't have this cloudiness of intellect that we have on this earth where you kind of maybe doubt those things. When you're in purgatory, you know for sure that your judgment was completely just. You know for sure you're going to be in heaven. You know what heaven's going to be like on one level, I mean more than you would on this, on this earth. And so you want that. You want those. But this really, purgatory, is a great mercy. It really is, because it's the mercy that... God knows you, you can't be in his presence yet. You, you don't deserve to be in his presence, really, because you do have these attachments, these sins uh, clinging to you. And so he's going to give you this like, divine shower, so to speak, you, you, before you enter into his presence. So you go to purgatory. Now, we don't know how long people are in purgatory for. For a long time, if you look at the old traditional prayer books, you'd see that there'd be indulgences for, and it would say 100 days or, or a year or whatever the case may be. And a lot of people thought that meant if you do this indulgence, you'll get 100 days off purgatory. That's actually never what it meant. It was a, a misunderstanding by lots of people. What it meant was it's basically equivalent to the indulgence, was a, getting the indulgence like equivalent to 100 days of, uh, I think, certain prayers, like the Our Fathers or something like that. And s- What's that? Like intense, uh, like a hundred days of suffering. Yeah, it's something, but it, the point is it's a hundred days here on earth. It's the equivalent of that. It's not a hundred days in purgatory. And so now we just have plenary and partial indulgences. Because before you had this breakdown of, how, of the hundred days. But again, it's not that it was a hundred days off purgatory because we don't know how long purgatory could last. Theoretically, purgatory could last just like that. It could be a, a quick instant. And we don't know. It could be super intense. It could last for a, you know, what we consider like thousands of years. Because the whole problem is with time. Once you die, you're, you're not, you are, there is time because there's change. Because that's what time is. It's just a measurement of change. And obviously purgatory, you're changing because you're getting all this, these disorder attachments purged. And, and you're becoming more and more uh, like God. And so there is time, but it's not the same as, as, as the time we experience. So in purgatory, though, we don't know how long it will last for each person. We know it's this intense suffering. We also know that our prayers 
can help people in purgatory. Our prayers do not help anybody in hell. Because like I said, once you're in hell, you're there forever. And our prayers don't help anybody in heaven either because they don't need any help. But our prayers do help those in purgatory. And so we definitely want to pray for those in purgatory. And they beg for our prayers because it will lessen their time in purgatory. However, that's defined again. And again, like these indulgences, because you can apply indulgence to yourself or to souls in purgatory. And so it's a very... A good act to apply indulgences to those in the, the, the poor souls in purgatory. And that one of the reasons they're called poor souls, by the way, is because of the fact that they can't help themselves anymore. We can still help ourselves. Until we die, we can help ourselves. But the poor souls in purgatory can't help themselves. That's why they're considered poor souls. Okay, now, save the best for last, right? After, you can, after purgatory... You go to heaven when you finish your time in purgatory, or you can go directly to heaven. Now, one thing I want to note, our goal for every one of us should be heaven, not purgatory. You shoot high, because if you miss, you know, you, you can fall down a little bit. If you're shooting for purgatory, I'm sorry, but you, you could miss and not be very happy at that point. So you want to aim for heaven, which means you want to be completely a saint when you die. You want to have no disordered attachments. You want to have no mortal sin and no venial sin on you at all. You want to be completely clean. That's why you want to go to confession regularly, you know, receive communion regularly, things like that. But heaven is the goal of every person. And, and the reason for existence of every human person is to be in union with God forever. And that is the, what heaven really is. It's being in the presence of God. Having the beatific vision is what it's called. And there's a, there's a big debate in the Middle Ages between the Franciscans and the Dominicans between, like, basically, it was like kind of like the will or the intellect, which is the greatest part of the soul. And the Dominicans were saying, like, the intellect, and so you're, you know God. That's the beatific vision. Where the Franciscans were more like the will, and so you love God, and that's how they see it. Of course it's both, but good Middle Age theologians like to battle over these things, so... And we know a lot more because of it. But in heaven, you have this beatific vision. You see God as he is. If you, if you know in the Old Testament, one of the things that would happen was, you know, Moses would have to turn his head and, and, and God, when God would like kind of pass by him. Because if you viewed God without the help of grace, you would be destroyed. Because it would be like this consuming fire that would just completely destroy you. Um, because of the fact you just, we're not capable. It's just too great for us. It's too much. Now, one thing that's very important to remember is any description that I give or anybody gives of heaven is a joke. <laughs> it's, it's nothing at all it like what heaven will really be like. Uh, St. Paul actually wrote, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, which, of course, is heaven. And so it's far greater than anything that we can ever imagine. And think about the greatest joy you've ever experienced in your life. Maybe uh, your, your wedding day or the birth of a child or, or something like that. That is like nothing compared to what heaven will be like. I remember there was this, uh, these people who kind of followed this one uh, Catholic visionary. And she had this, you know, she supposedly went to heaven and she then came back and described it. 
And her description was proof to me that she wasn't actually a visionary because it was so pedestrian. It was like just really, I mean, this was a very kind of low-level heaven. In fact, if you look at, for example, the, the Muslim view of heaven, I don't know if, if you've ever read it, it's very earthly. I mean, that's they talk about the, the 72 virgins or whatever it is. Well, all aspects of it, first of all, it's all very male-dominated. Uh, like, it's definitely from the perspective of a man what would be heaven. But it's all just like, you know, basically you're, you have a harem, you're, you have this big house, lots of good food and stuff like that. But that's not what heaven is. I mean, heaven is, the, like I said, the direct knowledge and, 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 and love of God. That's really what, what heaven is. And so it's greater than anything we can describe. And again, of course, it's eternal, just like hell, obviously. Uh, it's eternal, and so it never ends. Now, one thing that I think that people don't always realize, but the book made actually very clear. I remember I got in a debate with some of my friends when I lived in Maryland about this, uh, that there are degrees of glory in heaven. And I think people, we have this very, you know, especially Americans, we have this very... Um, egalitarian view of the world that you know we're all equal in every single way and by equal we mean the same but that's not what reality is really like we're all different and the fact is some of us are better than other people at certain things and vice versa and and some of us will be better at being saints than others and so for example the blessed virgin mary she is the best example of a saint and she will be the most glorified creature Forever, She is right now. She always will be. None of us can attain that level of glory that she attained. But it's not just her. It's everybody. There will be different levels in heaven of glory, but in different degrees. But for us, it's hard to think about because we automatically, because we're, we have the original sin, we have the sinful nature, we get competitive about it. Like, well, I'll lord it over the people under me and I'll, I'll be envious of the people over me. That's not how it will work in heaven. And the analogy that's often used is everybody will be like a different size cup. Your cup will be completely full, which means you'll be completely satisfied. You will have no jealousy, no envy, no sense of loss, no sense of, of not being completely fulfilled. You will have all that. But your cup may not be as big. You know, like the Blessed Mother is, I don't know, what's the big, like, jumbo one at 7-Eleven or whatever, you know I mean? It's like, you know, where we might be like a little thimble or something like that. But the point is, is that you still feel fulfilled. But that is because, and I think that makes sense that that would be like that because of the fact that the Blessed Mother did give her life more fully to Christ, more fully to God than we ever will. And so therefore, she has a greater capacity for glory. And so when I talk about these cups, in this life, we have the ability to change the size of our cup, to make it bigger or smaller. And so our goal, again, is not just make it to purgatory. It's actually not just to make it to heaven. It's to have the biggest cup possible because our love of God is so great on this earth that when we die, we have this huge cup, so to speak, that, can be, that is completely filled. Because no matter what size it is, if you get to heaven, it gets filled. But we want because we desire to love God the most. So... That's something, I was glad the book brought that up because I know a lot of times people don't understand that. They kind of think of everybody being the same, but that's not, there is a hierarchy in a sense in heaven. You see that the angels have a hierarchy and we're going to have the, a hierarchy in heaven with, obviously we have a hierarchy because we have a queen. You know, the queen of heaven and earth, our, our blessed mother. She's at the, at the top of the hierarchy. Okay, so just to review, 
at death, the body is separated from the soul, and we will be judged. We'll have our particular judgment in which time we will go to either hell or purgatory or heaven. At the end of temporal time, I guess you'd say, at the end of this world, our Lord will come back and there will be the general judgment in which purgatory is going to be emptied, our bodies are going to be, you know, our bodies are going to be reunited with our souls, and God's justice will be seen throughout all eternity. And so basically, I, I like this, oh, and the cosmos will be transformed. So you see here, this is, this is on page 662 of the book, but it's a great chart just to kind of see what, what, what we have to go through. And so I would just, one thing I would recommend very highly is, of course, we do this in November, but really it is good to contemplate death on a regular basis. Again, not in a morbid way, but in the sense of just knowing that each one of us is guaranteed to die. And so we should be ready for it. It's the one test we know we're going to have to take. It's the one interview we can't get out of. And so we need to be completely prepared for it. And that's what our life is spent doing. And again, we shoot for the highest levels of heaven. And then, you know, if we fall in God's mercy, you know, maybe we'll end up in purgatory or something like that. But we're not, hopefully any of us will end up in hell. Okay, are there any questions? Yes, sir. What did your professor say about Enoch? Oh, Enoch, Enoch in, the, in the Old Testament, there's a story of Enoch who is lifted up into heaven. And basically... It's an interesting story because we know that the souls in the Old Testament who died in justice, you know, Moses, the, the, uh, David, Abraham, that they couldn't get to heaven until our Lord on the cross, he died. What does he do on Holy Saturday? He gets those souls and he brings them up into heaven. I would argue, and this is the most common thing I've heard from different people, is that Enoch, he's lifted up, but really he's just going to the... Um, the, the abode of the dead. Now, what about his body, though? Because I said the only two bodies are, are Mary and, and Jesus. But what about his body? I guess I could. I guess you could speculate that his body is there too, because his body was lifted up. So I think you could argue that. And I don't. We don't know. We know for sure Mary. We know for sure Jesus, of course. I'm willing to say that possibly Enoch as well. And then there's Moses and Elijah, who appear at the transfiguration. You can refer to that. Right, but that I think could be easily explained that that's just their spirits potentially appearing in bodily form. Just like an angel Gabriel, he appears. He doesn't have a body, but he appears to have a body when he appears to Mary and to Zachariah. So I think that could be more easily explained that they just simply um, you know, appear in bodily form, but they're not actually going to be reunited to their bodies either until the general judgment. Again, we're getting a little speculative, but that's kind of mine. Yes, ma'am. Just a comment about purgatory. <clears throat> the visions of Fatima, Lucia asked about her friend, and yeah. Blessed Mother said she was in purgatory and she'd be there until the end of the world. Oh, did she? Okay, I didn't know that. Okay. And she was only 16. Okay. <laughs> how bad could she have been? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And the, the truth is, though, like the whole idea of time is different there. So, how time is perceived in purgatory, we don't know. And it's just one of those things that it's all very speculative uh, what it's really like. But yeah, if she said it, then that's true, obviously, um, that that's the case. I didn't know about that, though. It's good enough. Any other questions? What question? about St. Joseph? Where is, what is the church? I mean, everybody, other than Enoch, is the only exception, everybody has died. I mean, St. Joseph died. His, you know, his, so body, his body, it's not the church doesn't teach that his body is 
In heaven? No. 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 Only, only the Blessed Mothers okay. uh, was assumed into heaven. There actually has been some, uh, there was some who, who felt that uh, perhaps actually St. John the Baptist, because of the fact that our Lord said, you know, before, you know, actually not our Lord, but he was actually uh, blessed in the womb and all that. But I think uh, the only thing we can say is a definite doctrine of the faith is that our Lord and our Lady. That n- and nobody else. So, and, and you know, the general consensus is that Saint Joseph obviously can be one of these saints who's like, you know, got the big cup, but that he also was just, you know, he was affected by original sin, and so potentially had venial sin, you know, that he had committed in his life as well. Because really, that's the connection of the, the connection of the assumption is to the immaculate conception. The reason Mary was assumed into heaven body and soul is because she had no stain of sin whatsoever on her, not even original sin. And so that's why everybody else, you know, St. Joseph, St. John the Baptist, you know, uh, St. You know, Therese of Little Flower, whoever it might be, no matter how little actual sin they committed in their life, they did have the stain of original sin on them. And that's what caused then the separation, of, that's what causes death and therefore the separation by and soul. And we could also have a whole debate of whether or not Mary died, but I'm not going to go there. So it's one of those things that's, that's uh, debated. But we do know that she was assumed body and soul into heaven. Yeah. So you're saying it's a, a belief that those that are in hell, they're, in, they're not regretting the fact that they didn't do the right thing. They're, they're, they know what they wanted. Well, they're regretting it, but they just, they, they don't want to, they, they definitely regret it. But you can regret something and still, you can regret, for example, I mean, I think the best example in our world is like an alcoholic. An alcoholic might every morning wake up regretting that they drank last night, but because of the pull of their, I mean, in this case might be a disease or something like that, the addiction, they still go out that night to drink, right? They don't stay away from the bar. Well, this is like a billion times more than that. Like, they regret the fact that they are in hell, but they're not, they, they still don't want to go to heaven at that point because just they're so pulled into sin that they just can't escape it. I mean, just part of who they are at that point. Any question? Yes? In the Old Testament, um, isn't there a, a rich man that was um, that, that was on the other side of the chasm? Uh, and so when judgment did come, when Christ did come and judge, he would have Right. Are you think, probably talking about the parable of Lazarus? Right. And yes, the parable of Christ. And basically, what he's saying is that it, it, for the purpose of, I mean, the, the purpose of the parable isn't necessarily a description of exactly what the afterlife like. But it's the rich man is there, and he's begging to just like dip your finger in the water to, to you know, to 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 uh, cleanse me, or if not, then help my brothers to know and stuff like that. The purpose of that parable isn't. A description of what the afterlife's like. If you look at what he's trying, what our Lord's trying to say, it's more the idea that this man had all these opportunities on earth to follow God, to help the poor. In his case, that was the biggest sin he had. Was he was this rich man? He had a poor man. Um, the poor man was Lazarus, not the rich man. Um, we don't know the name of the rich man, and everybody kind of thinks that he named in the parable the, the poor man Lazarus because his very good friend Lazarus was rich. So he's kind of like letting everybody know, hey. Make sure you're, you know, take care of the poor. But the rich man, basically, the, the poor man was right outside his, his door, basically, and he did nothing to help him. 
And so that's the real purpose of that parable. And you see a lot of parables, like, you know, Jesus says things that aren't meant to be taken. That's not the point. Like when he says it's better to cut off your hand than to sin. I mean, it is in a sense, but at the same time, we're not supposed to cut off our hands, even though we know we're going to sin with them. Um, And likewise, I don't think we should take necessarily exactly how he describes that as what the afterlife is actually like. It might be somewhat like that, but the more important point is he can't get out of there. He can't be um, helped anymore. The chasm is so great it can't be crossed. Now, he is is in hell, not in the abode of the dead like Moses. And and traditionally, we've always believed that Adam and Eve actually are also were. In fact, that's the, the, the great icon of Holy Saturday is... Jesus is lifting Adam and Eve out of the abode of the dead. So, which is good that they ended up there. Sorry, I didn't realize that that was a parable. I thought that right. was a, like, like a legit... You know, that was a parable, one of our Lord's parables. So, Because okay. I was going to try to make a point of uh, when people say that nobody is in hell. Right. The Bible has a story of somebody. Right. I think the, I think the, the better biblical case would be Judas. Because of right. what he sure. said, you know how he said that, and you know, and, and there's nothing. And actually, um, I don't know my Bible with me. Uh, Saint Peter says in his early preaching, he basically says that Judas has gone on. No, not in his early preaching. I think it's when he, he they pick his successor. Judas has gone on to what he has deserved, or something like that. The wording is clear that he's not going. He didn't go to heaven. So, I mean, at the very least, Judas is there. And like I said, we don't know who is there other than probably we could say Judas is and obviously Satan and the demons. But the church never says certain people are because we don't know what they do at the end of their, the, the potential for repentance or whatever. I, I did have another question. Sure. Um, at, our, at our individual deaths, um, there's a certain way that we're to be buried? Our bodies? Correct. The church has always discouraged cremation. It's always encouraged that we, are, we cheer bodies uh, with the respect of, as a temple of the Holy Spirit and that they are buried in a Catholic, you know, with a Catholic uh, funeral and a Catholic cemetery, a sacred, a blessed you know, uh, cemetery. That's what the church has always preferred and encouraged. It's not to say if somebody is cremated that they won't, when, when the general judgment comes and, and the resurrection of body happens, they will get their bodies just as much as anybody Else will. It will be glorified and reconstituted, so to speak. So, if the preferred is to be buried your whole body in the Catholic cemetery, um, why did St. Jerome have the skull of another human being? <laughs> good question. I don't know. <laughs> it's a good question. You have to ask St. Jerome someday. <laughs> Assuming we all go here. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. Has there been any visions that have, um, explain how the purging happens? I mean, most visions, and of course all visions are private revelations, if they're not in the Bible, they're private revelations that we don't have to accept, but they give a general consensus. Is purgatory, your, your, your experience of it has always been described very much similar to like a hell light. I don't like that kind of way of describing because a lot of people think it kind of compare them, there really is no comparison. But the fact is, it is a, suffer- a fire, uh, is, is a very typical description you hear in, you see in different visions and things like that, is, is a fire that's purging. And really though, if you think about it, fire is a good uh, human way of looking at it, because think about gold that has become, uh, you know, has a bunch of junk all over, stuff like that. You burn it in fire, 
what's left, the gold, the, the solid gold, let's say, you know, something gold has a bunch of, you know, they made jewelry or something, has a bunch of other stuff in it, that when you burn it all off, you, you're left with the gold. And so that's, I think, a reason why purgatory is ascribed as a fire as well. Whereas the fires of hell are just the fires of pain and suffering, but the fires of purgatory are this, you know, clearing out the, the, the debris, so to speak. Yes, Debbie? What happens to your prayers if you pray for someone in heaven? That's a good question. Is that you, basically, the, the general consensus is that your prayers will kind of be applied to somebody in purgatory. And so let's say you're praying for a, a family member and they've, they've been in purgatory, but now they're in heaven. And you continue to pray for them. That's a good thing to do. And it's, ne- it's always considered it's never wasted. That basically it probably would be applied maybe to another family member or something like that. Um, but because it's definitely good to always pray for those uh, loved ones you have who have died. Never assume that they're in hell and never assume that they're in heaven. Just kind of say, well, I'm just going to keep praying for them um, for as long as possible. And knowing that the prayers will be put to good use if it doesn't apply. Like, for example, also with like an indulgence, you apply to maybe a soul is in purgatory. Same, same thing would be applied to somebody else in God's judge, justice. Okay, well, I think... We're finished here, and we're finished for the adult class. So, uh, Father, I wanted to thank everybody for coming uh, throughout the year. Really appreciate it. I have no idea what they're going to be doing for next year. I don't know if they know or not. So, uh, but, so thank you all for coming. And why don't we uh, close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Joseph. Pray for us. Your Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Again, I want to thank everybody who has listened to this podcast, whether it be one episode or all 100 episodes. If you listen to all 100, congratulations. You earned the prize, which is me being impressed. But anyway, though, I do want to thank everybody who's listened. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast as much as I've enjoyed doing it. I want to just encourage you all to keep swimming against the stream. Go against what the culture is telling us to do. And instead, keep the faith. Just don't keep it to yourself.